Good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank Wong. I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, welcome to our worship this morning. I hope that this sermon finds you well. A quick announcement to highlight before we get started. We're going to have a all-church night of prayer this coming Thursday. Uh, please be on the lookout for the details. Uh, we'll be doing that via Zoom. Um, we have a lot to pray for uh, as we contemplate reopening as well as all the usual cares and concerns uh, in our church. So please do set aside some time on Thursday night uh, to join us uh, in prayer uh, that, that time. So, but now let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you would, must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to, ser- to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage this morning, uh, we find that we are in the shoes of the disciples more often than not, that we squabble over uh, who has the places of honor and of glory and that we desire to be great. But Lord, you tell us that we do not know what we are asking for. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the way in which you define greatness the way in which you would have us uh, live, uh, seeking to serve others and not ourselves. So Lord, give us uh, the strength to hear uh, your words, uh, the grace to be transformed by your gospel, and uh, to be sanctified by who you are and what you have done for us. So Lord, bless us now, we pray, and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Inconceivable. You keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I hope you know what uh, movie I'm quoting from. Of course, uh, it's The Princess Bride. And Vizzini, the Sicilian mastermind behind kidnapping uh, Princess Buttercup, keeps saying that word, inconceivable, as Wesley, the hero, 
continually blows up his carefully laid plans. And finally, Inigo, his hired muscle, has had enough and calls him out with, on his word usage. And we're talking about the Princess Bride for really two reasons. The first is because it so aptly describes so much of our passage this morning. And the second is because Dr. Dave loathes this movie, movie for some inexplicable reason. Well, anyway, the disciples seem to be stuck in their own view of greatness. This is the third time we've heard Jesus teach about uh, his death and resurrection. And we heard it back in chapters 8 and 9. And here in chapter 10, the response from the disciples is remarkably consistent. Back in chapter 8, Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about dying. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus know that talking about death was no way for the great Messiah, the conquering Savior, to act? And then in chapter 9, the disciples started arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And so surprise, surprise, here in chapter 10, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, are clearly going after what they consider to be greatness, that they are fighting for the places of honor and glory. And the disciples, they seem to be preoccupied with this idea of greatness. And Jesus comes back at them with, I do not think it means what you think it means. And so we're going to structure our time around Inigo's words. We're, first, we're going to look at what they think greatness means, and then we're going to look at what greatness actually means. So let's start with what they think it means. This isn't too hard because it's the same way that we define greatness. Transcendent ability, power, influence, or wealth. Those that are able to dominate are the greatest. I mean, think about the people that have the great attached to their names, right? Alexander, Frederick, Louis XIV, Genghis Khan. They're all kings, conquerors, fabulously wealthy, influential, and game changers. They're the names that changed and shaped history. And the disciples define greatness the same way. Look at verse 37. What do James and John, the sons of Zebedee, ask for? They've asked Jesus to give them whatever they want and what's at the top of their list. The places of honor to the right and left of Jesus when he reigns in his glory. They want to be Jesus's prime ministers, so to speak, to rule with him, to enjoy the privileges of status, rank, honor, and glory. And it's not just any glory that they're seeking. They're on their way to Jerusalem. In the minds of James and John and really the rest of the disciples, uh, the time for Jesus to be the conquering Messiah figure, to be the great conqueror, that time has finally come. And sure, it's go there are going to be some bumps along the way, right? They're gonna, but they're going to win. They're going to rule. They're going to come out on top in a blaze of glory, the likes of which has never been seen before. And James and John want, want all of it. And the other 10 disciples are functioning the same way too. Did you catch their reactions in verse 41? And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And so the question is, why are they upset? It's certainly not because they're thinking as Jesus was, that James and John have no idea what they were talking about. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to call them together to teach them in verse 32. Rather, it's a rehash of chapter 9 when they were arguing about which of them was the greatest. And so you can almost hear their protests. They did what? How could they ask for the place of honor when that spot is so clearly reserved for me? And what are they trying to pull anyway? Trying to one-up us and get ahead? But the irony that Jesus points out is that they're 
acting just like the Gentile rulers that they hate so much. Those Gentile rulers, the hated Romans and their allies, were wildly ambitious and lusted for power, wealth, and privilege. They were all about climbing the social ladder and gaining more and more for themselves. And the disciples were emulating them in motivation. They wanted revenge uh, for what the Romans had done for them. They wanted to give the Romans a taste of their own medicine. And so Jesus says in verse 42 that the Gentile rulers lord their power and authority over the Jews. And the picture is one of abuse of power and oppression. And so now what do the disciples want? They don't just want to emulate them in motivation, but they also want to act like the Romans too. And so they want to be the oppressors, the abusers. And so now the oppressed and the abused dream of becoming the oppressors and the abusers. In short, they weren't thinking like disciples of Christ. Rather, they were thinking and hoping to act like Romans. That's what they thought greatness was, to dominate all of your enemies, to be essentially the Jewish version of Rome. And do you see how very self-centered both the request and the indignation are? And it's not just a harmless request. What's the harm in asking, you say? The asking itself reveals that everything is about you. Do you see how the whole mindset of worldly greatness centers on you and what you can get or have? This is the very opposite of what Jesus has been trying to hammer into their heads. Two weeks ago, we talked about letting the children come to Jesus. The point was that they were not to come as adults with ambitions and goals. They were to come with nothing, not even hopes for position. They were to come as children simply to enjoy who Jesus was. And last week, Uh, Last week highlighted that desire for God taking priority over all worldly things. We cannot serve two masters. We will either serve the God of money and power or we're going to serve the Lord. And unfortunately, the way that the disciples define greatness doesn't lead them to serve the Lord, but rather themselves. And the worst part about it is that in their sort of scramble for power and position, position and glory, they've forgotten something. And uh, we often forget this too. You see, all James and John saw was the victory, the glory, the awesome. But they've forgotten the battle and the price. In some ways, the disciples were listening very carefully to Jesus. They've heard that they're headed to Jerusalem and they've correctly deduced that Jesus was going to do something big there. They've watched him take the lead and resolutely march toward what he said is going to be his death. And so in some ways, they even hear that he was going to die because in Mark 32, uh, in Mark, um, because Mark tells us that they were afraid in verse 32. But they don't really get what that means. The prospect of glory that they were expecting sort of drowns out all the talk about suffering. And so... Really, they're not so much in it for Jesus himself. Really, they're in it for what Jesus is going to give them and what, and what he's going to do for them. And so they're being really terribly naive. As I said earlier, they're thinking that, sure, it'll be a little bit rough, but the payoff's going to be enormous. They're completely underestimating the trials that Jesus is going to go through. They completely underestimate the flogging, the killing, the all of that, Right? Which is why Jesus says in verse 38 that they do not know what they're asking for. They just don't get it. Because the cup, 
that he talks that they he talks about in the Old Testament was lit, uh, linked to God's wrath for human sin and rebellion. And the word baptism was used in the Greek language to speak of being overwhelmed by disaster and danger. And when we take them together, they point to the unspeakable horrors that Jesus would endure on the cross. The wrath that you and I deserve would be transferred to Jesus on the cross. And he wouldn't just take my penalty, which in and of itself is an eternity of punishment. He would take every penalty for each of his people, both past, present, and future. And so when I try to think about what it would have meant for Jesus to take on all of that wrath and divine judgment, it really just boggles the mind. It's hard to wrap my brain around what it looks like for me to take on that punishment, but for him to take on all the punishment for every Christian ever just boggles the mind. And that James and John can say that they can go through all of that shows just how clueless they are to the magnitude of Jesus' suffering, to the cost of the glory that they seek. And we know that they desert, the, desert him in the end, which reveals the folly of their declaration here in verse 39. And so it's clear that while the disciples argue and carry on about honor and glory and greatness, they have no idea what they're talking about. It does not mean what they think it means. But Jesus wants them to understand what greatness in the kingdom really means. And so uh, let's look at that, what greatness actually means. And it's important to note before we get any further that the drive for greatness, for dominion, isn't a product of the fall. We were made to rule. Back in the garden in, in Genesis 1, we were designed to be like God. We were made to have dominion over the creation. But that dominion, that rule, was a stewardship. The authority was never our own, but given to us by the true authority, God. And our first sin was to covet that power, that authority for ourselves. We wanted to rule with or in place of God rather than under Him, to be great independent of Him. And so it's no surprise that we and the disciples find ourselves fixating on greatness. But in order to go back to the proper order of things, we need to change, which takes us to Jesus and the gospel. Jesus turns everything upside down by saying, everything we've just talked about in terms of worldly greatness shall not be true among Christians. Let's read again verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever is great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. But for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And truly, the Son of Man is the one who came to fix what we did wrong in the garden. Instead of desiring to rule alone, what did Jesus do? He made himself obedient to the Father, looking to do the Father's will rather than his own. He gave his life to redeem us from our own self-centered sinfulness. So listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. And so, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that's true greatness. 
Which is why if we keep reading verses 9 to 11 in Philippians, it says God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we want that glory, we need to serve like Jesus did. But how can we participate in Christ's glory if we can't drink the cup that he drinks and be baptized with the baptism that he is baptized with? Did you catch the line from Jesus in Mark uh, 10:39? We've already looked at that verse for their foolish naivete. But Jesus has a curious follow-up follow up to their bold and foolish declaration. And Jesus said to them after they said that, th- that they are able, and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But didn't Jesus just finish saying that they had no clue what they were talking about and that they couldn't? What's with him saying that they're going to drink the cup that he drinks and be baptized with the baptism with which he is baptized? Well, there's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with our union with Christ. We make a big deal about Jesus dying on the cross and his resurrection that first Easter morning, and rightfully so. But that's simply history. It doesn't become the gospel or good news for me until I I am personally connected to it. And that happens when I am united with Christ, when we become one. It's in our union that with Christ that we see that substitutionary atonement applied to us. He gets all of our sin and brokenness and we get all of his righteousness and resurrection life. And that's what changes things from being news to good news, to change things from simple history, historic events to the gospel. But when we talk about union with Christ, the Bible doesn't just talk about our receiving his righteousness and glory. It talks about being crucified with Christ as well. And so in our union with Christ, we are brought into his suffering too. Truly being united with Christ means that we are being conformed to his image, the whole of his image. We are being sanctified so that we will be like him in every way. And so the whole point of being called Christians is because we are to be like Christ. And that is our greatest desire to be like him. When we look up to role models, What do we do? Aspiring NBA players steal moves and mentalities and even styles so they can be the next Jordan, the next Kobe, the next LeBron. And what about Christians? What moves, mentalities, and the like will we take from Christ to be like him? What's the image of Christ that we are trying to emulate? It's the picture of the greatest among us being the servant who takes on the lowly tasks like washing dirty, stinky feet. It's the Son of Man, God Almighty, coming down not to be served, but to serve. It's the humility, obedience, and service that we talked about in Philippians 2. And if we look just a few verses before that well-known section about Jesus, we would see that Paul was using Jesus as the prime example of what is being asked of us. Namely, that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. And that's really striking because that means that Jesus counted himself more, uh, less significant than others. He, the God of the universe, the most significant person ever, 
counted himself less significant than you and me whom he came to serve. That's the picture of what it means to be a Christian. That's the picture of selfless service that the Lord is calling us to. That picture of Jesus not only serves as an example of humility and service, but Jesus also provides the ability to actually do it. Remember that we're united to him? Jesus opens our eyes to serve. He changes our perspective by saving us from ourselves. He transforms us in that way. And when we think about all that we have in the gospel, we move from a place of insecurity and poverty. We're constantly worrying about our own position, rank, and future to a place of security and abundance, knowing for certain that the Lord has us, that it will all work together for those whom lo- who he loves and who is going to conf- he is going to conform to his image. But because, you know, beneath our drive for dominance is an overriding and motivating fear of being dominated by others. We worry that we're going to lose. And so when, we, when our whole identity and significance is found in being somebody, our greatest fear is that we are going to be found as a nobody. But the gospel speaks directly to that hope and that fear. To that desire for significance. Remember when I said that Jesus counted you more significant than himself? That means that he valued you more than his life, his comfort, and even his desires. You are his greatest treasure, the, great, the pearl of great value that he gives everything for. He, the God of the universe, has already declared you to be somebody of great worth. He thought you, you, were worth saving in your brokenness, sin, and ugliness. And he thought that you were worth nothing less than his very life. Friends, the gospel changes us. It enables us to live differently from the world. It enables us and compels us, really, to be devoted to a life of servanthood, seeking to outdo each other in acts of love. It enables us to reach out to those who do not believe in care and love, willing to suffer humiliation, pain, and even rejection. Why? Because we want to be like Christ, and that's what Christ did. The Christian life isn't only about the future glory and perfection that we look forward to in heaven, but also the greatness of a life of suffering service. And that reality has some challenging implications for us. And I think one of the biggest questions that this passage brings up for us is whether we actually believe all this to be true and also effective. Does it actually work? We're going to be talking about this in two arenas. The first is politics and the second is personal. You know, first politics. We live in the most powerful city in the world. We live at the seat of the most powerful government uh, the world has ever seen. Power, influence, and wealth flow here like nowhere else. And the mindset that the Romans had is the same one that millions of people in Washington have too. A desire for all of that power, influence, and wealth. And you know, we rarely preach on politics here at Potomac Hills, and I dislike talking about politics more than most. But our context demands that we think about the role politics play in our quest to expand the kingdom of God. 
The usual agenda for the American church is to put Christians or those sympathetic with our political positions into positions of power. While political work and being a statesman that serves the country are absolutely commendable lines of work and worthy of Christian participation, I wonder if our desire to see Christians in power with a Christian agenda is in line with the way that Jesus sees the church influencing the world. How does this jive with verse 43, where he says that the drive for power shall not be so among us? And really, this could be extended to any arena where power and wealth are held in tension with service. Rather, the biblical evidence seems to point toward an avenue of change that seems to us, at least initially, to be too slow and ineffective on the national level. And so we're impatient about it. We don't want to do it. Mark 10 seems to be pointing to the idea that Christians shouldn't be activists, activists seeking to gain the positions of power in the government for the sake of dictating cultural trends or directions. Rather, Jesus would like us to serve our communities and neighbors with the gospel. We should be seeking to sacrificially love those around us so much that they couldn't imagine life without us. Then, and only then, we won't be dismissed out of hand because our communities will actually care about what we think. They'll care about our opinions. And not only will they care, they'll trust us because they'll see that we're not out for ourselves, but out for them. And now you might not agree with me, but this passage at the very least should make us pause and examine our motivations and desired outcomes. Are we doing what we're doing politically to serve others sacrificially with a love that is not self-centered? Are we doing this for, uh, to care for our neighbors, both believers and non-believers, in a nuanced way that actually knows what they're going through? Or would we rather dictate to them what we think is right? And it goes back to whether or not we actually believe that Jesus' way is the best way to go about extending the kingdom and to change things. Which brings us to the personal arena. Jesus' call to servanthood demands a mental humility from us. It's really hard to serve others when you think that they're beneath you. Remember, servants don't think and act like masters. Rather, their whole purpose is another person, counting that other person more significant than their own concerns. But it's not just a change in perspective and mentality that's being called for. It's also a call to us to act. A servant doesn't, that doesn't actually do anything isn't a very good servant. A servant that doesn't actually engage with others in service isn't a very good servant. Friends, biblical servanthood requires us to follow through, to actually serve. Service is usually not pretty, easy, or inspiring, or often even safe. Rather, it's hard costly and exhausting and dangerous. But at the root of our inaction is often a simple lack of faith. We see that person over there that seems to be stuck in their sin. And what do we do? We chalk them up as a lost cause. Do we actually believe that service in the name of the Lord is a sacrifice, that is sacrificial and loving can actually change that hardened heart? 
We look at the structures and injustices in our societies. We look at the poverty, the big problems that we face, and do we really believe that sacrificially serving others will actually change the direction of our neighborhoods, communities, and nation? When we go, just go about our lives and comfortably stick with our church friends and a select few others, are we really seeking to serve those around us sacrificially? Are we actually showing them Christ? Are we promoting the welfare of the town and seeking its prosperity? These are hard questions because they get us out of our comfort zone. We're dealing with people, and people are messy, and so things get messy. And the influence that we're being called to is relational, personal, and gracious. We're called to be servants and friends to those around us, to bear with imperfect people as we serve them. It will never work out cleanly. But Jesus' Jesus' death and resurrection was not clean. It was horrible and hard. And so we'll end with a question. If Potomac Hills ceased to exist, would anyone outside of the church notice? Would your neighbors notice your absence if you were to move? Would your coworkers notice if you left? For the students, would your classmates notice if you dropped out? But the call is far more than simply being noticed or noticing. Would they care that you were gone? Would they miss you? And this has both corporate and individual components. Corporately, would they grieve the abs- our absence as a church? Especially in this pandemic, does Leesburg and all the other places in Loudoun that we live, would they feel our care and service? Do they feel our care and service? And inv- individually, would people miss you? I've noticed when churches and people who have loved me and served me are, have who have loved me and served me so very well are absent. I feel it. On the church side of things, I still love the churches that I've served at. They loved me well, cared for me, and called me to the gospel. And I miss those communities dearly. I love them. And as for the people that have served and loved me well, I miss their presence every day. And even though they're not physically present, they've had an enormous influence on my life. They are great in my eyes. And they've been powerful for the gospel in my heart. Not because they were impressive, because they had power, because they had wealth, but because they were for me. And Jesus is, of course, the greatest of these friends. Jesus never sought power, and he always sought to serve to the very end. And every day that I wake up, I acutely feel his physical absence. He is the single greatest and biggest power in my life. And he got that power by serving. And so will you be like Christ and serve? Will we be like Christ and serve? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, for these words that call us out of our paradigms of greatness and to the one that you have shown us. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have transformed us in your gospel, that you have taken us uh, and made us one with you, that we might receive not only the glory and righteousness and grace and riches that are yours, 
but also your suffering as well. Lord, we ask that you would make us more like you completely, that we would desire to embody you not only in your greatness and your glory, but also in your suffering, that we might see just a little tiny glimpse of what it was like to love us. And so, Lord, be with us as we go. Would you, you, would you open our eyes to all the ways in which we seek not your kingdom, but our own, in which we seek our own greatness, but not yours? And Lord, would you change us, we pray. Remind us that you have already declared us significant and valuable and worthy so that we don't have to chase after that ourselves. Lord, take us off the throne, put yourself on there, and make us selfless, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.